Welcome to the Adult Candy Podcast. I'm Miss Crystal, your host and idea slinger. What is adult candy about? Well, it's dedicated to cultivating creativity and sensuality in adults, which, let's be honest, is what we all want more of anyway. This exploration of mindful indulgence is in conversations with a very delicious mix of rebels, noted creatives, and sex-positive advocates of an imaginative variety. We dig into process and tools for facing fears and chasing dreams and keeping the magic in running the business of creative sexy cool. While this is absolutely going to be explicit with adult content and bursting with very sexy, the mission here is about embracing and accepting pleasure and desire, which is an internal process. And that is the foundation for any type of meaningful intimacy, passion, or sexual prowess. So buckle up or unbuckle or buckle down because in these very bizarro times, we absolutely can't go back. We go through. Perfect. How are you guys? We are good. Fantastic. Yeah, Shiki Dreams is open now and people are, the reaction has been amazing. Wonderful. So. Um, <clears throat> uh, what have been like, I, well, um, I, let's just jump in, shall we? Sounds good. Sure. Okay. Um, so welcome to the Adult Candy Podcast. I'm so happy you guys are here. Um, let's first do some introductions. So Eric and Jen, um, you are Prismagic. And um, tell us a little bit about how you became Prismagic. Um, where did you get that amazing name? What does that mean to you exactly? Well, the name comes from Jen's warped imagination. <laughs> it's basically uh, prism and magic put together. Um, so we like to think that we create a variety of multicolored uh, magical experiences for people. So that's kind of where the name came from. And we founded um, Prismagic. Really, it, its roots have, go back to late 2012. Um, Jen and I decided we wanted to build um, large-scale, cutting-edge art experiences for people, and we knew we didn't have the sort of the background to do that. Jen, Jen's been an artist her whole life, but building those experiences really is a different skill set. It's building at a larger-than-human scale. So we decided to form a company uh, called Artistry Events and Design, which is an, was an art-forward event design and production company for corporate corporations. So we did corporate events, Fortune 500 companies, uh, mostly so we could get paid to learn how to uh, <laughs> sort of learn the craft. Ran that company for almost five years, got to the point where we had acquired the skill sets, materials, knowledge, personnel to start our own production. So we sunsetted artistry events, uh, rebranded as Prismagic in January of 2017, and then have been doing our own work since then. Um, and that culminated uh, with a relationship with Museum of Outdoor Arts, um, with uh, 
uh, the installation that you guys did last year. Why don't you tell us a little bit about um, really the creative process in collaboration and making these huge, what did you learn from making this gigantic, large-scale event that was very successful in Colorado and um, just, just how the creative process works from having this idea and then bringing it into life and then really having the experience of people move through it and how that's shifted your sense of the create like building the creative world okay i'll take i'll take a stab at that i'm gonna i'm gonna start with um how it all came about just to give the, the lay of the land and then we'll jump into kind of what that process looked like with the museum um we had previously known the museum we had done an interactive piece basically like a mini immersive piece for the underground music showcase in 2015 it was an entryway um, they wanted a shade structure so we made a shade structure out of umbrellas they wanted it to be interactive somehow so um, we played with the idea of getting out of the weather and getting into the weather mm. being the shade was created by using a bunch of umbrellas on some scaffolding. And then we put a sound system in there that played storms and made some clouds that illuminated and some things that looked like rain and then a sprinkler system. Because the UMS happens in the middle of the summer, we wanted to give somebody, as they walked through, an experience of walking through a storm but in a refreshing way. Hmm. So having that experience with the museum, that um, was a nice introduction to when we started looking for financial partners for our large idea for Chris Magic of building these large-scale events. So when we showed them a, a mock-up in our studio, which is actually now part of Cheeky Dreams, they fell in love with the idea. They had already decided that they wanted to build some sort of immersive piece, and they also wanted it to be about nature, and that's what we had already done. So it made a very easy kind of decision to move forward together. Mm. Now, as we walked forward together, the museum wanted this to be part of their design and build program that they had had going on for about 28 years. So um, that was a little bit of a challenge for us, is to build the experience in two months with a whole new crew and be open to their ideas as well. So we had to onboard 11 new people and come up with a concept that would be able to be balanced with a range of different skills and abilities. So that's kind of where Natura came from is we were roughly modeling it after the prototype that we had built in our studio. Then we expanded those ideas and then we had to onboard and teach 11 new people how to do it in a really short term. Um, so that actually acted in a lot of ways of what the design was going to be and who we chose to be on that team because we interviewed over 50, 50 um, interns for that project. Um, as for the creative impetus, you know, Natura Obscura means hidden nature, and I have a deep love for psychology. 
So uh, we used the metaphor of nature and um, created different elements, water, fire, that sort of thing throughout the experience that not only mimicked nature kind of in, a, in our own aesthetic, but also mimicked the psychological elements of the human psyche. So that's how it all kind of came down. <laughs> Neat and very easy, I'm sure. <laughs> it was a juggling act for sure, but we've been through the rodeo. Event design was a really great school for us we had to turn ideas out really quickly. We had to manufacture really quickly. And so when I was choosing the materials and the individuals for the projects, along with Eric and the museum, um, we kept an eye on that, is what materials are strong, quick to work with. Anybody could pick them up, manipulate them, and they would look like they came from a consistent hand. So we did a lot of pre-planning to account for the fact that we had never worked with these people how did you like what was the experience of you know really just like that instant collaboration and you know because working in a collaborative experience with with other artists is always very tricky because the artistic process is so individually formed how did you um develop communication that was supportive for both your needs and for your, you know, your team? I think we really relied on a lot of structure um, because you're right. That can be a really difficult challenge is talking with people, 11 new people that you don't know. How do you communicate your ideas? And then how do you have an open channel for their ideas to be received. And then as the curator as well, of like what the aesthetic's gonna be like and what the story's gonna be, how do you make sure we stay on target? So we used a lot of different methodologies. First, we had a whole onboarding with our crew and um, we did a lot of team building and then we showed them the actual prototype so that they had a rough idea of what the aesthetic was gonna be. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, we had two months at the museum where we were artists in residence and we were building 3D models, 3D digital models to fly through of the museum so that they could kind of get a general sense of what we were trying to do. And um, also developing materials so that they understood kind of the look and the feel. So lots of design boards um, and a lot of pre-planning again. Um, and then on a day-to-day -day basis, how that looked was we would have basically what we call a five-minute stand-up where we would talk about what we were doing for the day and then um, teams were developed throughout the process and kind of would do certain sections like the fire section or the water section and we'd get status updates from them and then um, I would be there most of the time talking with each of the teams as we were developing that piece of the puzzle if you will and finding out where they were going, they would throw ideas my way, I'd throw ideas their way, and then we would come to an agreement. So it was very much a fluid, um, a fluid experience for them and for us, but super intentional and a lot of structure in there. So we all knew where we were going, and um, you know, a lot of it was building some structure for a system that they had never been through before. So it really helped keep people um, knowing where they were going 
because this is a relatively kind of re-emerging art form and it takes a lot of people to make it happen. So that structure is helpful in that regard. I'm glad that you touched on re-emerging art form um, because the uh, immersive experience is really has just um, blown up as it were. Um, what do you think is really the underlying of why people are, I mean, to me, it would seem that, you know, um, that, uh, there, there's kind of an exhaustion of the digital world and getting back into a place where you're physically there and present is, is just delicious for people. But what do you think is the reason why um, immersive has become so of the day, as it were? Well, I think that's probably wrapped up in the fact that people have come to realize that sort of the, this push for material possession is ultimately fairly hollow. Mm. People are more broadly looking for experiences over things. Mm -hmm. um, that naturally lends itself to sort of uh, the immersive experience, right? <clears throat> and experiences in general. And I would say specifically that technology is sort of empowering immersive experiences. It doesn't have to be the dominant form within it, but it can be used, one, as a tool. So we, we combine both physical art as well as digital art, um, but it's about 85 or 90% physical art. But technology also allows for the distribution of information. Mm -hmm. And so what you're finding is that these really new and creative art forms can reach a much broader audience Everybody knows. God bless Instagram. <laughs> what really what's what the coolest things uh, are around the world, uh, and immersive being the powerful medium that it is sort of qualifies as some of the cool experiences out right now, and now everybody hears about it. So I think that's those factors are sort of driving the adoption of. And immersive experiences, in my opinion, and I think there's a lot of reasons to believe this, are really the most powerful of the art mediums because, specifically, we're harnessing all of the powers of all the individual art mediums. So we, we are incorporating, for example, in Cheeky Dream, scent, sound, um, touch, visual arts across a variety of types, that sculptural, painting, all of that into mu yeah, music, um, all into a single experience. And it's difficult for any single medium to compete with the combined power of, you know, four, five, six different mediums. Right, all your senses. Right, exactly. <clears throat> Where do you think that this is going to lead um, in terms of how immersive experience can evolve. I mean, even for you guys, how has, you know, um, Natura, what is the current, like, what was the evolution into the current thing? What did you add in or, you know, how did you 
take it up a notch with this latest uh, installation? Um, with regard to Shiki Dreams, um, yeah, we are always looking at how can we expand the experience and how can we make it a little bit more special, a little bit more magical, if you will. So in this experience, um, it's substantially smaller than the Tour Obscura. It's about 1,200 square feet, and it's in uh, a little building right by City Park. So there's a lot of different, a different feel that comes with this. So one of our challenges was how do we create an experience that is intimate in a small space because you're closer to other people that might be exploring it. So one of the things we decided to do, and um, our tech lead, Sean Morris, brought in a couple of people he was really familiar with, and I worked with them to create little soundtracks for each space. Mm. We've also linked that up with the tech, so the little, the little lanterns that you see throughout the space you use your app and it actually changes the music and the sounds that you hear relative to your location because of those lanterns. And um, what we found with wearing the headsets and the music is it really allows you to go into your own personal inner world mm -hmm. and have a much more intimate experience in an intimate space. So um, that's kind of like our newest twist with things. We've also employed um, an artist who is an animator, and she created four animations to be used within the app. We had that before, but these are full-fledged, um, I think 20, 30-second animations that are like a little cartoon in there that help tell the story further. So um, every step of the way, we like to expand what we're doing, twist it up a little bit so that it's different. Um, obviously change aesthetics so that people can have a different experience and um, of our game. Do you think that this is like, that this is, I mean, that you love it so much that this is the, this is what you guys are going to do. Like, this is it. This is, this is the life. We are creating experiences for people. Or do you feel like this is um, just one piece of your evolution and you know and there's there's so many other things other realms that you guys together are going to explore you know this will be the core for sure this is and this has been our our mission focus since really early 2013 when we when we first adopted immersive experiences this was way back before immersive experiences had the footprint that it has now when we started no one even knew what we were talking about. You know, this was three years before the House of Eternal Return. Um, if anyone had, heard, anyone had heard of anything, it was maybe Sleep No More and possibly City Museum in St. Louis. But outside of the coast, and even at the coast, there was a limited footprint. No one had even heard of it. So um, we've been focused on this as our core mission for um, you know seven or eight, seven years, really. Now, will we do sort of spin-offs or other projects and explore other avenues? You know, absolutely. Um, but I, I don't think that this that the, the broad immersive experience will will ever be anything but our primary focus. That being said, 
I, and I like to ask this, you know, because uh, the mission of Adult Candy is about uh, cultivating creativity and sensuality in adults. So I always ask uh, artists, um, how do you maintain creative for creative sake when you are a practicing professional creative? together, one of which is um, using this art form because it's so powerful to really change how people see themselves in the world. So we always keep that in the forefront of, our, of the mind. It's our mission statement. It's who we are and what we want to do. So that's kind of gives us this rough, rough landscape to play in. And then within that, um, a lot of the tools for our storytelling really run along um, the lines of our human condition. Mm. I think it's really powerful um, for art in general to reflect back to us who we are so that we know that we are human, that this is a human kind of experience, and that um, we're not alone. So for instance, in the Torah, there was the swing in the clouds. Mm -hmm. And that is really just a metaphor. It's fun and interactive but it's a metaphor for the storms that we weather in life. And behind that, if you found the quote, it was sometimes the winds of change point us in our true direction. Mm -hmm. So really um, kind of what we follow when we're creating story for this is reflecting what's going on um, in the human psyche. Sometimes it's personal. Sometimes I see struggle with other people. But I know if we start with there, with that point, and kind of go back, and what are the stories that we want to tell about that, a fairy tale, if you will, around that, then we create the world that that fits in, and how we want to tell that story. So really, um, I don't know if it's that different than anything else um, that I've created in the past. It's something that moves me and something I want to talk about, and then how do we talk about it? How do we build something that people will be um, dazzled by and intrigued by? And if they interact with it, sometimes on a superficial level, great, that's, they're, giving, they're getting wonder and joy out of it. But if they can actually see that metaphor and if it speaks to where they are in their life right now, and I think that's really harnessing the real power of art as I've come to enjoy it and love it. Um, I can see myself in it. So that's, that's kind of how I believe we're going to be able to stay true to creating art for art's sake. Mm -hmm. um, because for me, art is really a reflection of who we are and, and the challenges and the joys that we go through. Hmm. Um, and for you, Eric? that <laughs> I mean pretty much for us we have always been a super mission driven company um, and I very much look at what we do as art in service of a greater purpose mm. and that really provides tremendous direction and informs everything that we do um, so for us 
us, I think it's, it's, it, it, it was, is, and will be creativity for purpose. Mm. And that nourishes you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, and for me, I, I think that, you know, if we're talking artist to artist, I think that many artists, including myself, are driven to be working things out through their work. Mm. Um, whether it be pain or joy um, or anything in between. And, and that being the case, it's, these are the thoughts that bother me. Not bother in a negative way, but they show up all the time. And in the world at large, I see kind of where these struggles or, or triumphs play out and um, feeling what that feels like. I want to translate that in an experience because we all have those same things happen. And um, whether they be exactly the same fact patterns, if, if you will, or just, or it's just an emotion that we all feel, sadness or loss or things like that. So it's just, it just, it drives me. And um, I don't think that that's an uncommon thing for artists. I think we are bothered by and process things in our lives and it comes out in our work. You know, and I think that um, in general, people move too quickly through the why portion of their process. Mm. And so what I mean by that is I believe it's starting with the why. Okay, why am I doing what I'm doing? Or why am I doing what I'm going to do? Um, people move too quickly into the, okay, what am I going to do phase? Um, and we have always been very purposeful about taking our time with the why. Mm. Um, and when you spend enough time up front creating or, or determining the direction you want to go into or the direction you want to go, then you won't find yourself drifting off course. Mm. And do you feel that that's reflective in um, your relationship with each other? I mean, because... Uh, I mean, if you, you're professional and you're, you know, you're, you have so many aspects to your relationship um, as partners, um, it, does that inform your relationship? Does it is strengthen it? Yes, I mean, I, I think so. We, we have a very much a shared mission. This, this concept of, or this mission statement of harnessing the power of art transform how people look at themselves in the world was was jointly developed by us um, and so there's total buy-in and total belief behind that and when you have that kind of belief you're you you are really your why becomes unshakable mm. and you very much stay on path and for I think for both of us certainly for me uh, the path has been so challenging, um, you know, being early into the field and trying to do work that people don't understand, have never heard of um, for years, really. For years, we were trying to, to educate people and, and the market on, on, on what was possible, and it was a very long road. If you don't really know why you're doing what you're doing, it's, it's much more likely and much easier to just sort of abandon ship 
when things get really hard. And if you're doing something meaningful and something big, I can pretty much guarantee you that there will be times, and usually more than one, where it's going to get super hard. And that mission statement and that reason and that understanding of why you're doing what you're doing will sometimes be the only thing that allows you to weather that storm. Yeah. <clears throat> How do you guys feel you cultivate the intimacy that you're creating um, with other people? Is it mimicking your own sense of intimacy or is it um, just designing, just like, how do you even hold space for an intimacy that is not really even known or explored or, or held in our pop culture? That's great. Um, I, I do filter it through myself. Um, you know, if we want to get super personal, I go back to when I fell in love with art. And that's a four-year-old, <laughs> a four-year-old sensibility. And um, I can tell you that it's all of the things of wonder and like, you know, we use flashlights a lot and that's not a mistake. It's that sense of discovery and me as a child, I loved being alone and finding things and discovering them for myself and um, creating environments like that where we are now as adults for, for the lion's share of the people that come and visit, um, reconnecting with that. I don't think that that's just my experience. I think that's a lot of people's experience when they're small is discovering the world. Now, how do we recreate that as adults um, when we have science and we pretend to know it all and we have basically taken the magic out of our world? Well, um, the reason I'm drawn to immersives is I can create a new world so people have now a sense of rediscovery and channeling that. So really I hold on to that small person it's still inside of me and I speak with her a lot about how do we get that excitement, that innocent excitement back, and how do we recreate it? And, um, you know, it's really very elemental. It's going back to all of those senses and reconnecting with those senses and um, slowing down. The, the art of exploration is not fast, it's slow. So we do things to slow people down and really looking at how was it that we came into this world and discovered things and try to mimic that, but with a little bit more of a, an adult sensibility. You know, we, we do enjoy having children come in, but I'm really interested in sparking the child that we may have forgotten as adults and getting them re-enrolled but with our new wisdom that we've had through experience and bringing those things together. Do you, <clears throat> that, that, do you feel that there is a way to do that, that incorporates um, the, the sensual? Because ultimately 
part of the whole philosophy of adult candy is that, um, that, you know, when you're a teenager and you're sort of kind of pushed into the world of sex, as opposed to taking time to explore the world of sensual, which is, is the internalization of, of pleasure, right? It's, it's not the external, it's the internal understanding of, of what feels good to you. And because we're rushed into like sex and relationship and all of these other things, we never really develop the muscles of understanding what feels good to us. And what would that even look like for you guys to, to like focus a world on the actual sensual? Wow. Um, you know, that's a, that's an amazing, I'd love to sit down with you sometime and have this as a real big deep dive, um, uh, as a conversation. Um, my first pass at that is you're right. It starts with the individual. It starts with knowing yourself, what you like and what you don't like. So in some ways, you know, maybe we've, started that exploration a little bit with Natura, with asking what's your hidden nature, what are these things that appeal to you, follow that part of the path, take those things with you. Um, as for modalities by which we could explore sensuality, um, you know, for a long time I've wanted to use food and beverage to really create further experience and have been looking at that for a few years. So definitely those are very evocative of sensuality is pleasure in the body. Um, so I, I think that there's definite ways to do it. It definitely is, um, it skews a little bit more into the realm of adults. Um, and that could be far more explored in that realm. Um, though our experiences tend to be open for everybody. Um, but I think it does start with the self and it starts with what, what feels good. And then what does it too? And yeah. you have to really understand that to understand sensuality. Um, so it's, it's a big, broad topic that I, I'm fascinated by. Um, but I don't know if I have the specific answers yet. Um, you know, I would I would probably just add that, you know, sensuality is often as closely associated with sex, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Yeah. And I think the root of it is really not. It's really about sort of a slow, languid exploration of the senses. And in that sense, I would say that there's probably some sensuality already contained within both the Torah and Shiki dreams, especially with the Torah, in, in the sense that it was a very sort of meditative, languid experience. Mm. Um, in, in your exploration of creating these tactile worlds, what was some of the most uh, successful tactile uh, engagements that you found that people just immediately just were drawn to and just could not stop themselves? Our BDSM room. 
right? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, well, the first one that comes to mind for me is is um, the in in Shiki Dreams is our we have a yeti in there, and you can actually pet the yeti, and so it's got this real tactile kind of fur thing going on. People love fur. should put that into the the next installation is like the the feedback loop room you know where people um engage in that what to you is the 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 practice that for you always brings you back to center like how do you nourish your your sensual being how do you cultivate your sensuality <laughs> and um, a bath is great. Having a really good, good meal um, is hard to beat as well. But I, I try to do those things that I really enjoy and, um, and do them slow so that there's like kind of a maximum enjoyment of it. I just, I hurry so much in life. And um, for me, it's the counterbalance is that kind of slowness, not waking up too early, um, drinking a cup of coffee super slow. I, I just love the slow aspect of things. <laughs> a, a tantric meal, as it were. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's, it's decadent, you know, like that decadence and the richness of it. And if you have great friends, 
gosh, you can't get much better than that. <laughs> and for you, Eric? Our BDSM room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I would say, for me, one of the things that really keeps me centered, and this is a little bit more, I'll answer this more as sort of centered and calm and in and not spinning out of control is, is really meditation. Mm-hmm. So I meditate every, every morning and we, you know, what we're, we're trying to do with, with Prismagic is, is very pressure filled. Um, and meditation and really getting pre- one present to just getting present. Oh, and two, realizing that our anxieties and fears come from stories that we're making up and that aren't real. Those two sort of practices or realizations really keep me centered and as calm as possible. Do you feel like uh, you've mentioned your BDSM room. <laughs> is there actually a BDSM room? Is that actually a part of the control and relinquish? Because I am, um, I, because uh, that's actually a part of the evolution of adult candy. Is I made a, um, I made a, a spicy dice app, and it has a, a BDSM dice on it. Um, because the idea of exploring uh, power exchange is hugely transformational in terms of people getting very present um, with themselves and in that being able to like move into different spaces in who they are. Um, is that something that you could envision as being a part of a prismagic experience that you that you have or is that something that you yourself have played with in order to um, open up to new territories in your own mind well I, I don't know about a BDSM room but <laughs> I can tell you um, that I have toyed with the idea of a vagina room okay and I can walk you step by step through it is is it toyed with the idea of a vagina room is that is that a play on words as well like is because there's actual toys inside <laughs> if so i think that's great like a gigantic vibrator or something well i mean this game this game years ago and there's so many ideas that have come and that have stuck and um this is hopefully for a larger project that we we would love to be able to um do and um Really, the room would be an adult-only room, obviously. Yeah. And um, you would enter in through some very lavish um, pink drapes. <laughs> and this would be an association with beverage. Um, and it would be basically be kind of like maybe hidden in a bar or something. Mm. And um, as you entered this dimly lit room, there would be fabric on all of the walls. It would be tufted, it would be super tactile, it would be super feminine and beautiful and ornate. Um, there would be a banquet of couches around the room that line the room. Um, again, reds and pinks with a um, kind of a retro clear 
plastic covering on top of them, like the old granny couches with the plastic covering so that they look slick. Um, the floor would be done in mother of pearl. The big table in the middle would be uh, acrylic so you could see through it. Um, and then there would be a large pearl chandelier coming down from the center of the room. And if you were able to explore the walls with your hands, you would find certain areas that actually responded to touch. And if you touched those areas correctly, it would flicker the lights and actually shake the banquettes of chairs and, and couches in the room. So that's that's been thought about for a very long time. Let's build it. Why is yeah. it not in existence? <laughs> Let's do it. We will not be using the UV flashlights in that room. No. <laughs> Please don't. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, exploring that is, yes, it's not um, first and form foremost for me yet. Um, as we kind of continue to explore the human condition, that's obviously one big, beautiful part of it. And, um, yeah, like I said, I think it would be really fun to kind of chat with you since that's something that's uh, foremost you know, more foremost on your mind, um, that I'd love to hear your thoughts on it because it's, it's fascinating and it's so multifaceted and, um, it's not something that we talk about as a culture. Exactly. For me, I think, um, to be able to embark on something that is really, um, whole from a lot of different points of view, that that's something that I, I don't know if I could, wrap my head around so I need partners to kind of make sure that I'm not leaving things out because I think that you know everyone's sexuality and sensuality is really tuned into that their personal experience and there's so many things that I'm sure I'm not privy to that I would I would need to have you know more expansive conversations about well and you know I think the the thing that I find that I'm most recognizing um, that has always really been a part of my journey because I've, you know, I've always been really fascinated with it. Like it's, it's, it's my home, you know, um, the exploration of sensuality and sexuality has just always been just like, that's my jam. Even when I was really young um, and, you know, I wasn't raised in Christianity or any um, uh, typical religion. And I think that that was kind of like, I never got like a stop or shame mechanism, um, placed within me. And, um, so it's just always been really fascinating for me to explore, you know, how, uh, intrinsic this shame culture is and it's global. It's within you know, all of the different religions, all, you know, even within Buddhism, there's so little space for the exploration of being a physical, sensual, sexual being and enjoying it. And, um, and therefore there's, there is so, so little conversation and so little real understanding about what an individual's personal sense of that is. And, um, I just, I, I think it's so much <sighs> evocative of what kind of imbalance we're in, in our global societal structure 
as you see all of this anger and this hate and uh, you know this fear and all of all of these elements of our design as uh, as a society, I think is all rooted in the fact that uh, we have shame for the one inherent design feature that we all have. <laughs> like the one thing that is by design, which is pleasure, and is the one thing that we all feel shame for. And how does that not affect every aspect of our uh, lives? You know, how do we even know what we would want as far as our relationships or our potential or our uh, calling or our creativity? All of these things are never really fully actualized because our ability to embrace who we are as a, as a pleasurable being is never fully accepted. So I think that... I mean, I just love the idea, like, I'm just seeing the vagina room and that people are, con like, exploring these walls to try and find, like, where the ridges are. And, like, someone finds the ridge and then instead, like, it shakes, but, like, you know, there's, like, one where it's, like, you get different kinds of reactions and, like, um, like there's, like, a disco ball one where it's just, like, all of a sudden it's, like, the, the multi-orgasm, like, wah! You know, and just like everyone's like, oh, someone found the real one. Woo! You know, because there, because there should be joy around right. it. There, like, and if we don't have this conversation, how can we in any way evolve our society to get to the place where we actually care about the planet? You right. know, where we actually care about the world that we live in. Because how do you do that? Because you can't be present if you can't understand your own pleasure, you know? Yeah. I, you know, I, I think that as I hear you talking about that kind of through my filter, this is what I'm getting is that we do not love ourselves wholly, you know? Yeah. And sensuality is all about learning what we love and embracing that. And, um, you know, we are a reflection of how we feel about ourselves and how we operate in the world. And if we're not self-loving and accepting of everything that we have, um, all of our quirks, whatever, you know, within each of us, um, how can we go out in the world and love other people? Um, and so, you know, I think sensuality and sexuality and that exploration is a beautiful doorway by which to really look at those things that we have of our own self-shame, self-hatred, self-loathing, um, and maybe a pathway to becoming more comfortable with those things, um, exploring them and accepting them. And then if we have that shift within ourselves, then perhaps the world can shift too. We can be kinder to one another and accepting more of other people because we have accepted the stuff about ourselves that are maybe, that maybe freaks us out a little bit. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's a beautiful thing to be exploring and um, be looking at because I think it does it. It invites a lot of hard, hard 
things to look at for each one of us, but I think it is a way to release ourselves from kind of a jail that we set up with self-judgment. Totally. I, you know, because uh, I always say that it's, um, then, then they can't market to us, you know, mm-hmm. because if, uh, if you have self-acceptance and you're like, I'm a pretty sexy motherfucker, so I'm not really, I'm not really worried about what you're going to tell me that I should look like to attract other people, you know, then, then, you know, there's no advertising, right? Like you can't right. be like pushed around and, Absolutely. and, and that I think is like where we lose track of ourselves is when, you know, we're like, well, I, you know, I, I, I'm attracted to this person. I have to, you know, try and manipulate myself to give them the right answers so that they'll like me more. Right. And that's just, that's like the normal thing. That's what people just normally do is they, instead of be like, I'm going to tell you the absolute truth about myself. Because if you like it, great. And if you don't like it, then that's fine too. Because then you can go and find something else and I can go and find something else. That's not logical in our, in the world. What is logical is like, well, if I tell them this, then they'll like me. Right. And then when that person is like, I thought you were this. And you're like, no, that's not, you know, it's not true. And then you're like three years down the road or 10 years down the road. You know, and it's like, all most marriages are all based on lies yeah and you know i just we can't do that we can like four thousand years it doesn't work (laughs) it just doesn't work so what can we do to do things differently it's all based on a scarcity mentality yeah like exactly you're not good enough to the right person isn't out there for you or the right people aren't out there for you or they won't um, like you if they find out who you really are right and and you know it goes back to that self-love thing if you can accept and love yourself more than anybody else really i mean like they have this whole paradigm really kind of wonky in my opinion is that you're supposed to love the person you're with more than anything else in your life well, if something happens to them, then you're more you're like emotionally bankrupt because you put it all in there. The goal is really to love yourself, and then all, you can invite other people into your world and are capable of loving them. Um, this whole thing that you're talking about is like you're not good enough, and you have to be this way to be the perfect woman or the perfect guy. You know, we're all different. Gosh, that's one of the best things about us is we're all different and that um that kind of eclipses that and it and doesn't shine light on the things that are so fabulous about our differences so um i'm with you we need to we need to change the paradigm we need to change the conversation and um and and i think if we can if we can get a foothold into that then i think people's lives would be definitely shifted in a really positive way yeah and we have to make a vagina room yes oh that's happening girl yeah vulva room yeah and we can actually just call it the vulva room right it's the vulva room welcome to it's gonna be fantastic yeah absolutely um uh 
Eric, I feel like you, 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 do you have anything that you'd like to, um, bring in terms of the male perspective? Because I, I think in this exploration, what has been interesting for me is really recognizing kind of the, you know, the wounds that men are, um, forced into never acknowledging, right? Like that their own, like societal structure does not leave room for men to explore their sensual side and their, um, emotions and their complexities. Um, how do you, how do you nourish your sensual side? Your divine well, masculine. I think you're totally right. Society is very much not supportive of men even not only expressing their emotions, but even feeling their emotions. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm not quite sure why that has become that way for whatever reason it has. And it's super damaging to men and it's isolating and it's really at odds with the core of what we are. Mm -hmm. We are feeling beings far more than we are thinking beings. Mm -hmm. And men are really pushed into the logical side of, of things and shamed for um, any emotional expression, right? Um, now I am, you know, fairly optimistic that over time that that will change and is changing but as it stands right now I think men are left to their own devices and not and they're still in many ways not encouraged from from getting in touch with their emotional core um, and I think the first step in healing that is just to realize that that is so and that all people, men and women, are, are feeling beings and emotional creatures. And not only is that okay, but it's actually the source of our strength. Mm. So, you know, long story short, or, you know, as a short answer, I, I would say that we are at the point, at this sort of this first step where society in general, men specifically, need to feel comfortable and accepting of the fact that we have uh, an emo we are emotional beings and have emotional lives and that's the core of what we are mm -hmm. how have you learned to recognize that in yourself and hold space for yourself as an emotional being against the grain of societal structure well, it's been, for me, it's been a super, super long road. I did not come out of a background that was supportive of, of, of that kind of way of relating to things. And I came out of a, a very traditional background of sort of where emotions were repressed and there was not a lot of communication. Um, and that, that had a lot of da that did a lot of damage to me, you know, as, as young People, you know, as children, we are essentially, we essentially adopt the environment and the norms of the environment in which we're raised. So I adopted and internalized those norms. 
And that becomes part of your programming in a very embedded kind of way for everything, not just emotionally, but in general, how we relate to things. But specifically for what we're talking about here, you know, I was very emotionally repressed. And um, it's, it's been decades of work to, to sort of shift that within myself. And it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing sort of challenge, too. Um, I want to dig a little deeper, if you're, if you're willing. What was kind of the first moment where you recognized... Um, the toxicity of repression where you were able to sort of like see it and recognize it and be like, whoa, maybe I have a choice to be different. And what were some of the like, you know, actual tools that you used to tease out like a truer Eric? say that there was a, a moment, a singular moment, it was more of a process. Mm. So, you know, it started with just ha- dealing with a lot of issues with depression and isolate, isolate, isolation induced depression. Um, really, that was came from how I was brought up. And so while that wasn't, there was no conscious association like oh I have grown up in a really repressed isolating environment I've adopted those norms and that has caused me to feel isolated and depressed there wasn't that kind of conscious realization it was more like oh I'm really feel really isolated and lonely and unhappy and depressed um, and that's just the world I live in but that's sort of the predecessor to everything else right that, that, that creates the environment in which or from which everything else came. Mm-hmm. Um, and I eventually started sort of moving out of that environment, getting out of that environment. And shifts started taking place around what my emotional experience of life was, but still without any kind of conscious understanding and framework about how this all really worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just over time, I became more and more aware if I were to point to a singular sort of seminal moment, um, which by even pointing it out, it's it sort of is at odds with, with the fact that it's a process, but nonetheless, I call it maybe like a final step is a better way to describe it, um, was when we, I went through Landmark Education, mm. and they started really a, a, a sort of a, a, that was my first deep dive into how these things really worked and what was going on. And in a way, I would say that was the beginning of, let's say me sort of, quote unquote, formally being on the path of self-knowledge. Mm. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, Landmark is really interesting. I did, uh, I've done Landmark and I've done PSI. Um and I think that it, it, it is really important um, that, you know, I think what's powerful about it is that you do, you, you have like this weekend, like the initial um, 
the initial weekend where you're just like, I am going to step outside of my normal process and I'm just going to spend this entire weekend focusing on my inner world and how my inner world works. And it is very transformational to take an allotted amount of time with a group of people that are all conscientiously working on uh, going internal and working on their internal structures and giving them tools to evaluate those things. So, um, well, you know, I, mean, I think that landmark is super empowering because of its sort of primary mission, at least as, at least as, as far as the forum goes, which is the introductory or first step course, um, in that it really shows you, how can I put this, sort of it, it, it makes you realize that there's a difference between what happens and what we make that thing that happens mean. Right. And that's like, hugely empowering. If you don't really see that and understand it, then you become a slave to whatever happens to you. You have no control over what you make that mean. Right. And for people who haven't, you know, aren't really that familiar with Landmark, um, we will make, if you don't have that realization and any training around that, you will make something mean whatever it is that your programming makes that mean. And your programming is a largely a function of the environment and the relationships in which you grew up. So you become this, you're just an automaton reacting to what happens to you based on how you've been programmed. And if you want to have control within your life, or at least more control, then you need to, in a way, become your own programmer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, totally. Uh, I think that when you do um, personal development work, you start to actually separate yourself from like the uh, childhood traumas, right? Where I, I remember, I think specifically it was Landmark where it was like the recognizing of um, that my my childhood self could would just sort of like all of a sudden, you know, be driving and reacting to something that was happening to me as a adult but it you know the reaction that was happening was you know my seven-year-old self you right. know it was like ah freaking out as a as like a seven-year-old like wait a minute i'm an adult I'm, I'm totally okay why am i freaking out and you're like oh okay because uh these ideas of you know my whatever trauma happened like just automatically allows for my seven-year-old to take the the wheel again so, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're all, and that's what we're built for, right? Totally. We're, we're built by our genetics and evolution to be that. Yeah. Um, and it's that's just a survival strategy. You know, maybe maybe that was a great strategy for you know ten thousand years ago when it was all about survival. But those strategies are not optimization strategies or the best strategies for the society we live in now. Right. Survival versus thrive. Right. What's that? Survival versus thriving. Right. Right. Totally. Um, 
Well, this has been a really wonderful conversation. I think I've uh, really... Um, thank you guys so much for um, taking the time uh, with me. And um, I'm just so looking forward. I, I still haven't seen the new installation. I'm going to... That's absolutely... Uh, going to happen um probably when i get back it's uh give me a little um the little promo for uh what you guys are working on and the website and all that fun stuff and um we'll do the the final wrap up yeah yeah sure no that sounds great so shiki dreams you know from prismagic our, our latest creation is really the most awesome thing ever <laughs> definitely go many times <laughs> should fly in from all over the world most awesome thing ever you should move to Denver so you can visit it every single day on our PR team <laughs> <laughs> <from> your friends <laughs> um, um, you can, you can, you can um, learn more about Chris Magic and, and about Shiki Dreams and get tickets at um, www.chrismagic.com so that's P-R-I-S-M-A-J-I-C so magic with a J mm, which has its own connotations to it and if you know then you know so you, <laughs> we don't have to tell you <clears throat> yes indeed um, okay well I again thank you guys so much uh, what a pleasure for you both to be on the show um, and, um, I guess that's it. We'll, we'll yeah. end it there. Cause I, I know I would love to do like a three hour long show, but, um, <laughs> I'm trying to be like hour, right? I can convince people to like turn on for an hour, right? Yeah, it is. It, it's super, like, I know that once people actually like they, um, like they listen, they'll be like, oh yeah, that went by really quickly.